San Francisco de los Llanos was a mining camp sitting on the hot, dusty desert floor near Altar, Mexico. In the center of the town square was a water faucet, the community's sole source of water. Mine workers needing water for their homes would pay the company for access to this faucet because, of course, the mining company owned the water. Then, one day in 1909, four years after this water source had been established, the company decided to move it from the center of town to the outskirts. Now miners had to pay more for vendors who were contracted to haul water from the faucet's new location back into town, where most of the miners lived. The miners, naturally upset by this, induced the local constable to talk to the mining company's manager. This official was told that mining operations had moved, so it was not cost-effective to maintain the faucet and a man there to sell the water in the central plaza. The constable offered to give money out of the town's treasury to offset the cost of keeping the water in the middle of the town, but the manager simply told him that it was not in the interest of the company, an American company, to do so. Eventually, the prefect of Sonora had to talk to the governor of the state to talk to the manager to get the faucet restored to its rightful place. However, one month later, the company suddenly cut wages for certain workers, and you can guess which ones I'm talking about, who decided to leave rather than work for less money. This incident, which will cause anyone who is or ever has belonged to a union to cringe, was a small affair taking place in a tiny mining camp that doesn't exist anymore. But the attitudes at play here, and the concentration of power in the hands of an American mining company among a sea of Mexicans, were hardly unique. As we'll see, at the turn of the 20th century, northern Mexico pretty much became colonized by Americans in everything but name, due to the arrival of the railroad and large-scale mining. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you are listening to AZ, The History of Arizona. Episode 153, The Yankees of Mexico. Welcome back, everyone. I know it's been a long two weeks, and... I thank everyone for their patience. The break was well worth it as I managed to plow through some much-needed reading material to get ready for our upcoming slate of episodes. Mainly, I read up on what we're going to be talking about today and next week, and which will close out our time in the 19th century. Which is no mean accomplishment seeing as we started talking about the 1800s back in episode 12 or so. But before we can dive into what the 20th century has in store for Arizona, we paradoxically have to look at what Mexico, or at least the northern part of it, has been doing for the last few decades. This episode may seem out of the way, but the reason I'm focusing on it is because what's happening south of the border actually sets up a lot of dominoes that are going to fall up in Arizona over the next couple of decades. So today we're going to focus mainly on the state of Sonora and the massive tidal wave of Americans who came flooding across the border to exploit its resources. 
Mexico had really had a rough go of it, even after it hopped off the Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana merry-go-round in the 1850s. We touched a little bit on this in episode 52 when talking about how the French had actually tried to take over Mexico and even set up Emperor Maximilian I as the nominal head of the country. Even once the Mexicans had taken back their country and Maximilian was executed, there still remained an effective struggle between the liberal and conservative politicians in the country. There's a lot more that could be said about this period if anyone wants to start up a History of Mexico podcast, but what concerns us is the 1876 election of a man named Porfirio Diaz to be president of Mexico. Now, Diaz comes from the liberal wing of Mexican politics and was a soldier by trade. In fact, he was not only at the Battle of Puebla on May 5th, 1862, he was actually one of the heroes of the day helping drive back the French. The great irony of Diaz's election is that he had campaigned on the platform of no re-election, a sticking point with many liberals who were tired of seeing autocrats get into power and then just sort of hang around, propped up by dubious elections. Well, Diaz then got into power, and it turns out he was just another autocrat who just sort of hung around, propped up by dubious elections. Except in his case, he would be in power for the next 30 Five years. This period becomes known as the Porfiriato and is a fascinating little area of study, and I highly recommend that you check out the ninth season of Mike Duncan's Revolutions podcast, where he spent a whole episode talking about Diaz and how he contributed to the upcoming Mexican Revolution. But the main takeaway from Diaz's elevation to the Mexican presidency is that he had big ideas on how to transform his country and they pretty much all concerned that big old nation to the north. Because of their constant political squabbles, high debts, shortages of cash, and some pretty unforgiving geography, Mexicans had never really developed an infrastructure that would lead to any kind of industrialization. So Diaz decided that if anyone had the capital and the gusto to invest in his country, it would be those gilded-aged Americans who are always looking to expand their influence abroad. I'm painting with a very broad brush here, but through various financial incentives and inducements, Diaz basically opened the floodgates and American investors, always looking for a way to make a buck, came rushing in. Okay, that's the high-level backdrop, so now let's shift our gaze north and zoom in a bit to the Mexican state of Sonora, sitting right across the international boundary from Arizona. As we are well aware from our dealings down there, Sonora was a long way from Mexico City, both geographically and politically. It had never been properly developed by the Spanish, and as late as the end of the 1800s, roads were either terrible or non-existent, and people still got around mainly using their own two legs or a burrow. For example, the road connecting Hermosillo to Guaymas, the capital and the nearest seaport, took days to travel, despite being only 60 miles long. A stage service would not appear between these two major cities until 1856, but even then it wouldn't be a regularly scheduled service until a full 20 years later. By 1880, a few other stagecoach routes did snake across the desert, even connecting all the way up to Tucson, but it was still a long, dirty, bone-jarring ride. 
Oh, and bandits, because of course there were bandits waiting to rob these heavy, clunking stagecoaches. What Sonora did have was a good amount of mineral wealth, but without proper transportation and equipment, it was hard to truly exploit the mines that were littered across the desert. So even as we get into the 1870s, Sonora, while one of the biggest states in the Mexican Republic, was also one of its least populated. The best way to get there from central Mexico was to take a ship up to the port town of Guaymas and then hope you could find a burrow to take you down some crappy road to where you wanted to go. The last thing I want to touch on is politics. Whenever I had mentioned Sonora over the last 130-odd episodes, it had been controlled by Ignacio Pesquera, who finally managed to wrestle political control away from Manuel Maria Gandara in the 1850s. Well, Pesquera would end up exerting control over the state for the next two decades, but moving into the late 1870s and early 1880s, he was no longer the top political dog. Instead, Sonora was basically run by three men, General Luis E. Torres, Hacienda owner Rafael Izabal, and politician Ramon Corral, who collectively were known as the Triumvirate. And these three guys were very much in line with the Porfirian program of getting Americans to invest in Mexico in order to overcome the barriers that kept the country from fully industrializing. In fact, Diaz will eventually appoint Ramon Corral as his vice president in 1904, which would be a great feather in his cap, except this Sonoran politician would have to resign in 1911, along with Diaz when the Mexican Revolution came storming in. Okay, so with all that said, Sonora was a prime place for the Americanization of Mexico to happen. But what first really opened it up was the arrival, finally, of the railroad. The first railroad started going in from Punta Arena, just outside of Guaymas, on May 6, 1880, and within two years it went all the way up to the border. Now, on the macro level, President Diaz took his cues from the United States when it came to building railroads, specifically how the government had to incentivize construction with land grants and other subsidies. So, the Sonora Railway Company, incorporated in 1879, received a subsidy of 9,000 pesos per kilometer of track laid on the route from Guaymas to Hermosillo and eventually up to the border. This railroad would be both a blessing and a curse to Guaymas. The port city suddenly had greater access to American goods coming down from the border, which could then be shipped out to other destinations either further south or over in Baja, California. And then ores, hides, dye woods, sugar, and other exports could then be shipped from Guaymas up to waiting American buyers. This also led to a population boom and a middle class, which had barely existed beforehand, began to thrive. However, the port never would become the San Francisco of Mexico, as when other Mexican ports were eventually connected to a rail line, such as Mazatlan, Guaymas's prestige fell. Furthermore, as the building of a railway led to cities arising at the Mexican-Arizona border, they became the main custom houses for the state, which took away from Guaymas. And finally, as I said, the railroad was built starting just outside of Guaymas, not in the city itself. It would take some time before a spur line was built that actually connected Guaymas to the main line. 
Hermosillo also benefited greatly from the arrival of the railroad, as suddenly it had a means to ship out its cash crop, oranges. The city had been growing quality citrus since the time of the Spanish, but it never had a means to mass export them. When it did try to ship them to places such as San Francisco, the oranges always arrived well past their prime. Now, the U.S. enjoyed these oranges, which were as good if not better than those coming out of California or Florida, quickly and cheaply, which gave Hermosillo the nickname of La Ciudad de las Naranjas, or the City of Oranges. Also, with the railroad came telegraph and telephone wires, which did wonders to, for the first time really, connect these northern states to the rest of the country. Though, in fairness, these lines were really put in place to connect them to the U.S. But the real reason that Americans and Mexicans were so ready to invest in railroads is the revolution that it brought to mining. As we covered in our very first episodes, mining had been a big draw going back to the earliest Spanish intruders into the Pimaria Alta. Mother Nature had been inordinately kind to the Sonoran Desert, which did hide quite a bit of precious minerals just beneath the surface. However, mining in the area always remained in the hands of smaller operations and after 1860 really had a decline. Some writers blame this decrease on the turbulence caused by Maximilian I's attempt to take over the country, but others point out that it was the natural consequence of all the factors stacked against mining in that part of Mexico. And here we're talking about all the old problems. Relentless attacks by hostile Amerindians such as the Mayo, Yaqui, and our old friends the Apache. Flooding, which had doomed the mines around Tombstone, was another issue. Mexico's political instability, which had sent a generation of mine workers to California. The Sonoran Desert itself, which is not the most hospitable place on Earth. And finally, the thing I keep harping on again and again the lack of good transportation. You can bring as many tons of ore out of the earth as you want, but if all you have to transport it is burrows and slow-moving wagons, you are not going to get that far. But starting in the 1880s, with the policies of Porfirio Diaz and those of Sonora, and the arrival of the railroads, suddenly American investors who had access to the latest mining technologies and practices could start to get the most out of these mines. And even up to the end of the 1800s, we are talking primarily about gold and silver mining. According to an 1893 report to the American consulate, there were 519 mines then in operation in Sonora. 353 of them were for silver, 62 were for silver and gold, and 43 were for gold. So, those two minerals alone made up nearly 90% of all mining activity. However, this would eventually change dramatically for two reasons. The first is that the bottom fell out of the silver market in 1892, and long-time trading partners like China and India stopped buying. Mexico switched over to the gold standard in 1905, following the lead of the United States. The second reason for the change in mining is that suddenly copper, gold and silver's less attractive cousin, was in high demand. With the arrival of the works from people like Edison, copper was now urgently needed to wire everyone up to the burgeoning electrical grid. 
And that's to say nothing about the wires needed for telegraph and telephone lines. In 1800, the output of all the copper mines in the world was 2,000 metric tons. By the 1880s, it was 240,000 metric tons. And by 1913, it was over a million metric tons. And by 1900, the profit from a pound of copper was double the cost of producing it. With this voracious, growing need for copper, American businesses saw an opportunity. Most of those silver and gold mines I just talked about were owned by Mexicans making a tidy profit, with maybe a foreign-run company or two here or there. But between 1900 and 1909, the number of mining claims, mostly made by Americans, jumped between 1,400 and 5,335. Nakosari, which lies directly south of Douglas in Agua Prieta, was one of the first towns hit by this copper boom. The mines were bought by the Moctezuma Copper Company in 1895, but they were bought out five years later by Phelps Dodge, the behemoth mining company that was currently making money hand over fist up in Bisbee and Morency. In 1900, Phelps Dodge was pulling out about 45 million pounds of copper out of its mines in Arizona and Sonora. By 1913, that number had ballooned to 157.5 million pounds. But the biggest boom of them all was Cananea. Lying less than 30 miles south of the border, roughly straight beneath Sierra Vista, Cananea and its mines had local notoriety. But in the late 19th century, American entrepreneur William C. Green formed the Cananea Consolidated Copper Company, or the Four Cs, and eventually bought out 10 square miles of land in six different mines. The market value of the Four Cs mines came out to be about $7.2 million worth of copper, silver, lead, and zinc. Not only that, Cananea became the biggest city in the state, with 96 blocks of homes housing some 22,000 inhabitants by 1906. Believe me when I say we are not done talking about Cananea. But its sudden rise is an example of the renewal in population happening as mining suddenly exploded again. Old towns that had been teetering on the edge of oblivion were now suddenly full of vigor. Even sleepy fronteras, once the site of an important Spanish presidio that we talked about way back in episode 8, but now just a community near Nakosari, suddenly sprang back to life too. As is usually the case with such things, following the miners and the mining companies were artisans selling goods to men who suddenly had money to spend, farmers and ranchers who had food to sell, and storekeepers who now had cheap American-made goods they could offload. And, as good news for officials who had invited the Americans in, the taxes these companies brought in could keep a municipal government in the black. There was no doubt about it. Sonora was booming. Unfortunately, as we see again and again in any boom, there are sometimes some significant downsides as well. Let's start with the railroads. Much like in the U.S., because really it was the same guys behind the lines in the two countries anyway, railroads needed cheap workers to put their tracks down as fast as possible. And that meant railroad camps, which 
to the Victorian attitudes of the time were just filled to the brim with the worst vices of humanity, including drinking, fighting, and prostitution. In Mexico, it also meant hiring Yaqui Amerindians as the first wave of cheap labor. However, the tough realities of the labor and the fact that Mexicans had been waging war on Yaquis for decades meant a labor force that was probably hiding malcontents who rode off and raided towns when not laying down rails. What's more is local landowners complained that the railroad was stealing their laborers as they had employed Yaquis as farmhands long before the iron horse arrived on scene. And after the Yaqui, the railroad lines turned to that old standby, the Chinese. But that created more problems in the long run because, much like the Americans, the Mexicans had a very racist and almost xenophobic attitude toward the Chinese. Seriously, there are few groups in this period of history that are more hated than the Chinese. The arrival of the railroads also brought with them petty crooks and swindlers who set up shop outside of stations. And, oh, train robbers, because of course there were thieves just waiting to rob locomotives as they steamed across the countryside. Finally, the trains may have been a shot in the arm to the towns they connected, but if you weren't one of those you were mostly out of luck. Towns that lost out on having a railroad started to shrivel up as men and money moved away to the towns that did. Over on the mining side of things, there are two main paradoxical problems. The first is that the mines, quite frankly, caused inflation. So much money was pouring in, and so many people suddenly had spending money, that the economy ran away with itself. Miners in Sonora made some of the best wages for labor in all of Mexico, earning 1 to 3 pesos per day, compared to the average farm worker making less than 50 cents in most parts of the country. However, the cost of living in the mining boom towns was absurdly high, just like the cost of clothes and the basic food staples like meat and wheat flour for tortillas. And we are well aware of similar things today, and here I'm thinking about what the high wages of Silicon Valley workers have done to the cost of living in the greater San Francisco area. Or probably an even better example is the boom in North Dakota's Bakken oil fields a decade ago, where McDonald's was paying its workers more than $20 an hour, while men were living in the most cramped conditions while raking in money hand over fist. But now let's turn to the other side of the coin. Mining as a business has two great weaknesses. A, its prosperity is inextricably linked to the international market, and B, mines play out. Keep in mind that ore from Sonora was not heading down south to Mexico City, it was almost all heading north to the U.S. So the state was increasingly dependent on the American economy and international markets. The perils of this were on full display in 1907, when the aptly named Financial Panic of 1907 severely undercut the copper market to the point that Cananea and Nakozari basically shut down. This in turn led to massive layoffs, creating an army of the unemployed, who were often unable to even get back wages owed to them from their suddenly cash-strapped employers. So the miners did the only reasonable thing to do, 
They drifted away to find more work somewhere else. And when the miners go, the vast array of businesses built on selling things to the miners go. And when they go, all the institutions catering to them, schools for example, also close up shop. This same dynamic played out when mines simply couldn't produce any more ore. Mining can and does create boomtowns, but it also can and does just as often create ghost towns. But I've saved the biggest glaring problem of this economic boom to the very end. As you no doubt have noticed by now, everything is run by Americans, not Mexicans. In the years between 1895 and 1910, the number of Americans living in Mexico doubled from 10,222 to 20,693, with more than 70% of that increase happening along the six states that bordered the U.S. Sonora itself saw quite the surge, with one Mexican historian saying that during the same time period, the state saw its modest population of 570 Americans balloon to 3,164. In all the large communities of Sonora, Americans own the nicest homes in the best neighborhoods with the newest amenities, where they quickly became part of the upper class. For example, in Hermosillo, the adaptation of American ideals and ways of thinking led other Mexicans to dub the city's residents as the Yankees of Mexico. And when we are talking about the railroads and the mining operations, I want you to keep in mind that it's really Americans running the economic show now. Sure, the Sonora Railway Company, which had built the initial line connecting Guaymas and Hermosillo to the international border, had been formed in Mexico, but in reality, it was just a subsidiary of the Atchison, Topeka, and Santa Fe Railway and controlled by Americans. Now, as I ever so briefly touched on in episode 15, shortly after independence, Mexico had set some restrictions into place, such as mandating that only Mexicans could own land within 20 leagues or approximately 60 miles of the international border. But as Rachel St. John in her book Line in the Sand points out, the really earnest American businessman had a few options to get around this. The first was to straight up become a Mexican citizen, which wasn't an avenue most of them went, but a few did, deciding that getting rich was worth more than what country they technically belonged to. The second was to get in business with a Mexican partner who could be the legal name on the paper that allowed you to operate. But the third was a massive loophole that most of these businesses exploited. Because if a company simply incorporated in Mexico under Mexican law, they basically got all the perks of citizenship except voting. So while William C. Green remained an American living in America who couldn't operate at Cananea, his Four Seas company was free to own property and exploit the country's mineral wealth however it wanted. Another minor speed bump at the beginning was what was known as the Código Minero, a law that had been on the books since the Spanish days, basically limiting foreigners mining on Mexican soil. This law had been amended over the years to be a little more foreigner-friendly, but still, critically, it left the ownership of anything under the ground to the nation. 
But Diaz and his advisors decided that wouldn't do to attract foreign investors. So in 1884, they amended the Corrigo Minero, which stripped local states of their control of mining, giving it instead to the very American-friendly national government, and conveniently got rid of that clause about the country of Mexico owning everything underground. Now, it's true that Americans did bring their experience and know-how to Mexico when it came to these industries. But once there, they didn't teach so much as dominate. Sure, Mexicans, Yaquis, and others were more than welcome to do the dirty business of actually mining. But all the engineering, administrative, and management jobs were held by Americans, who, quite frankly, were rude, condescending, and downright abusive. There's a story of five Mexican graduates of the Colegio de Sonora who went to Cananea for technical training, something that the mines had promised to do. However, after a year, these graduates reported that they had instead been relegated to the basest mining work and maybe oiling machinery while living in squalid conditions. The company, of course, denied this, and eventually these students just abandoned this quote-unquote opportunity. Over on the rail line, once again, the people doing the physical toil of actually laying down the rails were Mexicans or Yaquis or Chinese, but the Mexicans lamented that the men with blue eyes owned and ran them. The conductors were always Americans, and even American young men, barely out of their teens, were running stations, operating telegraphs, and clerking for the business. Oh, and I guess this goes without saying, but yeah, none of them really even bothered to learn Spanish either. While we are on the subject of the railroads, I should point out that the ones in Sonora were not meant to connect Mexican towns with each other. Instead, they were meant to connect Mexican towns with the United States. By 1910, there were four spurred lines running between Sonora and Arizona, built and paid for by the American mine owners. With the exception of Agua Prieta, on the border across from Douglas, none of these spur lines connected to a Mexican town. Most served merely to get their precious copper ore up to the smelter that Phelps Dodge ran in Douglas. Also, American goods came down these lines to waiting company stores or merchants in Mexico, but aside from the ore, no Mexican exports made their way northward. The railroads or at least the spur lines in Sonora, were there to serve American interests, not Mexican ones. I'm going to leave things here this week, but join me next week when we actually get back to Arizona and dive into the examination of the actual border and watch as these transformative forces in Mexico create the border towns and dynamics we live with today. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you've been listening to AZ, the history of Arizona. Goodbye.